Okay, Robert. So we have been talking about um, Shanti and the way that it comes and goes depending upon um, the levels of stress that we're under. This is very, very characteristic. The Buddha knew all about it. And so what we need to do to begin is to start with a stress-free environment so that we can then start to pay attention to the fact that this is not a stress-free environment at all. I've got quite a mess in here. <laughs> sure. But that's a whole lot better than having this mess in here and trying to be on a diet or trying to um, uh, withdraw from tobacco or something else because these are additional stresses on the body. Right. Now, um, any good meditator will say that uh, when the body is sick, when, the, when you're on a diet, or when you're withdrawing from a bad habit like tobacco or something, that's the time that you need sati the most. Right. Okay. But that's the time that it's going to be least available. Yep. Okay, so that means now that um, the right approach knowing that is to plan in advance to build up sati as a skill so that it's going to be there when we need it the most. This is actually very much like Murphy's Law. Mm. Now, Murphy's Law is kind of a joke simply because it was Murphy's Law. Uh, but Murphy's Law actually transformed first NASA and then the entire electronics industry. Oh, wow. And here's how it did that. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong at the last or the worst possible moment, which means that when is a rocket going to blow up is when it's under its most stress. When is that? Liftoff time. And that's when uh, the Explorer blew up. That's when rockets go bad. Also, yeah, when, uh, when is the time when an electronic piece of equipment is most likely going to go bad? Now, this is a trick question. The, like, the time when it's most likely to go bad is when it's being handled by a human being. We're talking about like installing a hard drive into a computer. Yeah. That that hard drive is under most stress when it is being installed. Sure. Why? Because that's the time when the connectors can be put on backwards. If the if the drive is already installed and up and running, the next time it powers up, it'll go fine because it. Um, uh, is all plugged in, but during that plug-in time is when connectors can go, you know, like USB connectors. People will try to shove them in upside down. Sure. Mm -hmm. So this is the whole idea then behind Murphy's Law. It's not that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. It's the point that it goes wrong at its most stressed out point when you need it the most. Right. This is also with Santi. The time that you need it the most is when it's least likely to be there. Right. Totally. 
Why is that? Because we're all stressed out. And that's when we need the sati. But it's right. hard to remember. In fact, that quality is hard to remember is um, in, in Washington, D.C., when I was there, I was in, in several offices and found uh, that even though these, uh, for instance, one would be in a, in a big company that was doing work with the government, and then you'd go to a government office, and then you'd go to another government office, and you'd see the same wall drawing at that particular time. It, was, it had been making the rounds. And what it was is it was a line drawing of someone standing in a pond surrounded by alligators. And the caption of it was is that when you're up to your hips in alligators, it's hard to remember your original intention was to drain the swamp. And here it is that it's hard to remember. It's hard to remember that you're that you came to Washington to drain the swamp when you're being surrounded by the alligators. Right. Right. Okay. So this is the whole point. Then it's hard to remember when you need to remember the most. Right. If we understand it that way, then that will actually influence our practice because now we really understand that our practice is to practice sati. Sure. That's the number one skill that needs to be developed. Why? Right. Because we want it to be there as a skill when we need it the most. Sure. So one one thing I find kind of amazing about it, um, this experience of quitting smoking, is I still have those those wonderful sati jhana moments, you know, where I'll uh, remember just, you know, take a deep breath and there's the hindrance, you know, aha, Mara, I see you. And that does still bring me the same amount of joy that it brought me before, even with the physiological stress of quitting smoking. And that's really interesting because I, I wasn't sure that it would. You know, I wasn't sure that I would find the same joy, you know. Well, about the smoking, the tobacco industry uh, kept uh, the American culture addicted for uh, literally decades by telling them a half-truth. wasn't a full lie, it was a half-truth. And the true part of it was, uh, basically, the research that they had could show that people who smoked five cigarettes a day or in that neighborhood, less than a, um, a quarter of a pack or about a quarter of a pack a day, they actually overall on large statistical basis were more healthy than ordinary people. And this helped the tobacco industry to stay in business for years. Was that half truth that people were actually more healthy overall than uh, by smoking five cigarettes a day? Here's what was really going on, though, is, is that people who would smoke more than that, the tobacco would build up in the body more and therefore do its poisons. But when people were smoking only five cigarettes a day, when people would would smoke those cigarettes, only getting a few of them, they made the best of it. So you can imagine they take and they light it and they get a drag and they 
They suck on it and then they take a real nice, long, deep breath and hold it. And then almost as if the tobacco was their excuse to take an Anapanasati breath. And while they were smoking that cigarette, they were breathing really well. Right. This is very interesting when we recognize that if these these objects actually, because of the way that we use the objects, make us more healthy, then it's hard to see the dangers in those products or actually in anything that we do. That our whole lives are basically built on according to what the Buddha says is that we're looking for gratification. That uh, that because of the ignorance of the uh, that's going in with the second noble truth that we want things, and so we feel better when we get them. That's the gratification. Or if we don't want something, then we feel gratified by beating the tar out of it. And this gratification that we get, we that begins then to mold our lives so that we go seeking for gratification without making the inspection to see whether it's really wholesome or whether it's got disadvantages on it. If this is basically uh, the teaching of the Buddha would be uh, what businesses have finally learned to do that they call a cost-benefit analysis. You know, many, many companies get really ruined because they bite off more than they can chew. A really clear example of that was when AOL bought time. Right? That was too much. They bit off way more than they can chew, and it destroyed AOL because of it. AOL could have been the biggest king in the Internet. Right. But they didn't. They didn't do a good cost-benefit analysis. They didn't recognize all of the costs that were going to be involved with them buying. This is exactly how we operate as human beings, too, is the smoking. We can feel the advantage of that, the taking of the deep breath, uh, the buzz of the body, the taste of the tobacco and all of that, and we feel gratified. But then we begin to inspect a little bit more, take some more evaluation, and you recognize that, hey, times have changed um, uh, income has changed, and now this tobacco is more expensive than it used to be, and therefore it costs more. And now it's not nearly as enjoyable because it's expensive. So that's right. one of the cost benefits that uh, we have to make. And o- overall, people then, when they recognize the health cost, that's when the tobacco industry fell apart. But they were very slow going to do so. And not only that, but they built up an entire industry of half-truths that now uh, the oil industry is using to great advantage for them to stay in business, even though they're uh, keeping the whole planet Earth from being able to breathe well. Right. Right. And so uh, these big companies will take an advantage to uh, because the products that they have have a mixed advantage, that there's um, cost as well as benefits, but they only want to sell the benefits and hide the cost. And it's up to each one of us 
to make our own evaluation to find out what is the right. Um, is this worth the price? Is this worth the cost? And as we get wiser and wiser, the answer is more and more. No, it's not worth the price. It's not worth the cost. Right. So it's too high. Let's find our gratifications at a at a discount. Right. Let's find it right here and right now. Let's find it right here, right now, without having to do much of anything about it. So this whole quality then of breathing with the uh, the tobacco is something that anyone who is quitting smoking should, um, let us say, practice in the sense that uh, you can take the stogie or the, the pipe or the cigarette or whatever like that and do what you're going to do with it in all cases except set it on fire. It, that uh, this is this has been common. You were talking about your dad still is addicted to gum. Maybe what he could do instead is just carry a pack of cigarettes around, pull a cigarette out, and play with that for a while. Put it in his mouth, suck on it. There's a little bit of tobacco that comes with even doing that. Just don't set it on fire. Sure. Make sure yeah, that he takes yeah. a puff. <sighs> because most of the benefit of the smoking was taking deep breaths and people are not getting that with the chewing of the gum. Right, right. Well, that's funny. So a couple of things. So one is um, on the uh, on the smoking, I feel like if I tried that method, let's say I had some some cigars or cigarettes that I didn't smoke and I just tried puffing, I know myself and I know I would inevitably take out the lighter and light it. You know, I, yes, I wouldn't be able to resist. This is true. Yeah. But the inevitable taking out the lighter, we give yourself the advantage of the inevitable. What is that? The time that it takes from the fact that you had the thought, I'm going to puff on this tobacco without having to light it up. And when was that? 10 or 20 minutes before the inevitable you, load, you lit it up. That was 10 minutes of safety. Sure. Sure. So that's yeah. the whole idea then is, is um, rather than thinking of it in terms of no, not now, forever, and making a great big thing, this is in fact what we mean by renunciation. Yeah. Okay. Renunciation is not the not now, it's the not ever. Sure. And we don't know about what the future is going to be. All we know is about what is happening right now. And so this is why the Buddha puts renunciation as an ordinary right view. Interesting. And people just say, wait a minute, how can that possibly be? Because of, um, there's even poly word for it, nekama. Hmm. Renounce, to throw it out. Well, now, wait a minute. Let's look at how renunciation actually works. Normally, renunciation is done in a ceremony. Normally, renunciation is done um, as part of, let us say, joining an organization, like particularly the vow of celibacy for for a priest, or a power, a vow of poverty, or a vow of silence which then puts the people on an extra 
uh, let us say, an extra list of, of rules to follow. More rules. That's what happens with renunciations as we make a rule. Thou shalt not have that uh, tobacco. And so when we want it, now we feel bad. You should not want it. Not only can you not have it, but when you do want it, you're a bad person because you want to have it. Okay, and so this is what happens with the renunciation. It's much better to have the attitude of not right now. Okay, that I can postpone the inevitable one more minute. I don't have to light that cigarette right now. Right. That's where we look at it is that that's why mindfulness is in fact, we're looking at developing mindfulness when we can have the mindfulness of grabbing that lighter and, and just say, wait a minute, wait a minute, not now. So we put the lighter down and we continue to hold the cigarette without lighting it, taking right. another deep breath. <sighs> okay, so we take those deep breaths and we have to remember over and over again. This is what Sati is about. Sati is to remember to what we're doing right here in this very moment, rather than Sati of remembering that I made a rule for myself. Right. And just a few comments on Sati and maybe questions, but um, so one is I noticed that um, that the act of the, uh, I, we, I've mentioned this to you before, I, I believe, but the act of noticing a hindrance, the aha mara, I see you, is very pleasurable. I really enjoy it when that happens. Yes, I don't that's even the say whole it. point of it. It's not yes. even verbal anymore. I just notice and it brings me joy. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's also interesting because sometimes I feel I will notice some unwholesome, subtle quality of an experience that I can't even tell you what that quality was, but I notice it and I have the same aha, Mara, I see you sensation. So, you know, it might be I'm having a conversation with someone and I notice maybe the beginning of an unwholesome reaction, not even the reaction, just like a little shadow of a reaction. And I'll notice it and it'll gladden the mind when that happens, which is really interesting. Um, because I can't even tell you what the unwholesome thing might, what actually was, just that I noticed it. Um, but the other thing I was going to mention is it can be frustrating um, because I have days and sometimes, you know, like multiple days in a row where all of this is going great, you know. And then I have something like the, like the quitting smoking or the shot or whatever maybe just a bad day for who God knows what, and, and it just kind of like drops off a cliff, the sati and all of this. And it's frustrating because I, what, I, what you want, what humans want is this, you know, linear progression where it's just getting better every day. That's just not the way it works, you know, even with this, I've found. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Well... We started with that, that when we're under stress, that's um, 
just like Murphy's Law for any electronic piece of equipment. And that is, is that when things are under stress, it's hard to remember. It's hard to remember that when, when you're up to your uh, hips and alligators, it's hard to remember that your original intention was to drain the swamp. Right. Okay, now that's a metaphor for every moment that we live. It's hard to remember to take a deep breath when I have all of these alligators of feelings of I need a, a, a tobacco fix. Right. Okay. Instead of recognizing, hey, wait a minute, these alligators are telling you something. They're telling you they're hungry and you want them to be hungry. You want them to starve. Right. Okay, so this is how we look at it now is a different way is to recognize that these things are so hard for Sati. So we have to practice well. And the way that the Buddha talks about practicing, this is very subtle, but it is actually in the sutta um, spelled out in a way that when you really see it, it's profound, but most people read right over it. I see that, in fact, a lot in the suttas. Uh, one of the things that I saw in the suttas um, many years ago was the fact that the sutta is really, really hard to read. It's really, really hard to read because you're going to get some profound deep insight on the first page and the second, third and fourth page are really hard to read when you've just been floored by some profound point on the first page of the sutta. Right. Right, now I exactly find that a sutta is easy. I mean, we can get through a sutta in about 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> Used to take sure. four or five days, one inside a day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so wow. um, in the suttas, in um, the Anapanasati Sutta, each one of the 16 stages is specified in kind of a poetic little phrase. And they substitute this word and that word as they go through. And most people will only go through and pick out this word and that word and this word and that word without recognizing that it's packed inside this tight little paragraph This repeated over and over and over and over again. And when you recite this stuff with the monks uh, uh, in, in the chanting, that's what becomes apparent. It's the over and over and over point where so just one that. word is being uh, substituted. And so um, the things that are in that paragraph that are repeated over and over again is uh, the point of uh, that. For, let's take an example, which we've been already discussing a little bit today, and that is gladdening the mind. That we just it's not that we gladden the mind is one of the things that we do, but rather the gladdening of the mind, it says specifically is a skill to be developed. Thus, one trains oneself to mindfully breathe in long while gladdening the mind. And then thus one trains oneself to mindfully breathe out long while gladdening the mind. Okay, it doesn't just say gladden the mind to number nine and, and do this number 10 and do this number 11. It always has this set phrase in there that um, that sati or that um, 
gladdening the mind is to be done with full shati to remember to breathe in long while you're developing gladdening the mind and to remember to breathe out long while we're gladdening the mind now this is quite profound because most people don't get uh, that sense of it they think that in fact there's a lot of different objects and uh one of the ways that it's taught is in fact that uh the breathing is only just the first object just for the very rank beginners it's the first thing that they do once they get skills they can leave the breath behind and go do other important things like noting or the nimitta mm-hmm. or some nimitta or something like yeah. that um and then there's other uh statements about uh the breathing that indicate that there's a whole group of practitioners who do not practice according to Anapanasati. In fact, the um, bless you. Excuse me. Have you been smoking? No. <laughs> Just getting old man and talking too much. <laughs> Uh, got it. <laughs> uh, the the point we're looking at is, is that in fact the Mahasi method and the Goenka method, which is part of the Mahasi method, uh, as well as the Sri Mankans, um, the one the number one sutta that they look at and get their uh, inspiration from is the Satipatthana Sutta. And yet, in everything that they need to do is in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's just kind of glossed over. That the Satipatthana Sutta is actually kind of an overview, just like the Anapanasati is kind of an overview. And because some of the details are left out of the Satipatthana Sutta, those details then get left out of the entire teaching practice that Mahasi sets up. Er, so I, I have a question on that before we uh, mm-hmm. go on with this. So um, when I was at Swan Moke in 2013 and also in John Buddha Das's book, the, the manual for, for Anapanasati that I recently read, it's a very good book, um, they, they, they talked about the use of the nimitta um, do you ever go into that in your teaching, or because it seems I've never heard you mention the nimitta once, but I remember uh, Dhammavidu mentioning it at Swan Moke, and I also uh, read it in the book. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on that whole practice. Um, the nimitta itself was originally from uh, the Casino meditations that were common. Uh, before the uh, the enlightenment of the Buddha. The nimittas other than that are not mentioned anywhere in the suttas. The nimitta was not mentioned about breathing meditation until the 5th century AD in the Visuddhimagga. The Visuddhimagga has had enormous influence in, uh, let us say, modern Buddhism 
that the story is, is that when the British came to Southeast Asia, especially to Burma, that um, the Mahasi method and the new way of looking at Buddhism was a reaction to the Burmese reaction to Christianity invading. This mentality of the importance of the Basudimaga had been there uh, in many places. And the Pikabuddhadasa was also influenced by it. But by the 1930s, he could begin to see holes in it. And he started talking about it. But it was still in the 1950s when he was talking about Anapanasati and would still have things in there. So it would be the older literature and some of the other stuff that he wasn't looking at. But Robert and I have had long conversations about to see that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa over the course of the years came more and more into the suttas and what was actually in the suttas and started to leave the newer literature, the Vasudhi Maga, behind. Until by the time that I had become, uh, uh, let us say, knowledgeable of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, I met a monk in Bodh Gaya who actually made a demonstration to me to indicate that he, and then later in Thailand, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa and all of their followers um, were, let us say, uh, had fallen, the Visuddhimagga uh, had fallen out of favor. At one point, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was known to have said that if you took the Visuddhimagga and the Abhidhamma and the commentaries and threw them into the ocean or burned them all up, that Buddhism would be better off. Wow. Okay. So this Nimitta was really there. Now, how the Nimitta actually operates when it's a real Nimitta is that you take the Sina, which is an object that's about, let us say, the size of a dinner plate. It's normally made out of mud or leaves. And because it's made out of love, mud with little rocks and stones and things like lit, or it's made out of leaves, which means you have the, the veins of the leaves and the various colorations and things like that, that you look at this object and then you close your eyes and try to recreate the object as best you can. This takes enormous focus. And so they open their eyes over and over again and re-establish the details of a particular area. Then they close their eyes and see if they can remember that exactly. This is the quality of the nimitta. Now, basically, that can be done with the breathing. If you focus on the, the nose tip right here, then you can feel the touch between the breaths. The nimitta will be not the sensation that your breathing creates when you are breathing. The air goes in and that touches the skin and causes a sensation and then you breathe out. And that same uh, touch of sensation is there because of the movement of the air. But after you breathe out, can you still feel that touch or that sensation? When you can still feel it, that's the nimitta, okay? That's what the nimitta is. Is the nimitta useful? The answer to that is it depends upon your, what your nimitta is. 
And those kind of nematodes that get the, the mind focused may not be uh, as, as useful. And in, in fact, it goes against what's in the suttas. The sutta never talks about nose tip. But even in the Vasudhimaga, it's not talked about as nose tip. In fact, the word that's used is cave. Now, what is a cave? Can the cave be the nostrils inside the nostrils? How about inside the mouth if the mouth is open? How about is it a cave if the mouth is closed when we're talking about breathing? Perhaps the cave that they're talking about in this letter literature is not mouth or nose or anything. It's the cave of the chest. When you're breathing in, you open and expand and it's a cave. When you breathe out, the cave uh, contracts. So the cave is expanding and contracting. Paying attention to that is what is in the suttas. Paying attention to the uh, to the breath body, which could then be used as the cave. So possibly this nose tip stuff in the nemata is all just bad translations. Hmm. Oh, but it is completely yeah. unnecessary for practicing first jhana and is never mentioned in that sure. regard. That in fact, all of the information about nose tips and nematas and all of that kind of stuff is a thousand years after the Buddha. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, because of his training and whatnot, included that stuff, but it was only later when he began to move it out. And, and the book that he uh, that was done, that Anapanasati book of where he's still talking about the nemata is in the late 1980s. So yes, he did continue to talk about that, but that it's not really part of the sutta, it's not really necessary. Um, and that it's, um, this also go for this, that the nemata of the, of the breath has a value for a particular practice. And that's not what our primary practice is. The primary practice that we need to do, and it's talked about in the suttas in many different regards, the first thing is um, the first jhana. The way that we're talking about the first jhana is, is that the Buddha first off in sutta number 36 talks about that the real path through enlightenment is the first jhana, and he said that after he had been expert in all of the jhanas. The next point is, is that in the suttas, an example would be sutta number 111, where uh, the Buddha is talking about Sariputta, uh, his practice. They spend a really big, big, long paragraph talking about the first jhana including what it is, how to get into it, and what's to be done while one is in there. Then the second, the third, the fourth jhanas are just kind of additions to it, almost as if someone came up in the book later and made these additions to it. But the, sure. even with those new additions to it, still the primary teaching is about the first jhana. 
the nimitta has the quality of the higher jhanas in the sense that um, guarding the breath is good for going into the second jhana and then from the second to the third jhana is where this nimitta is really useful is for the higher jhanas. I remember talking about that to Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. It may have been that in the translation, either Sir, uh, Santikaro missed what Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was saying, or Bhikkhu Buddhadasa kind of slept over it. But sure. when, when you and I are talking about it, and you ask me a direct question, I, we can go into the details of it. Sure. Okay, so, and the details of it is that yes, there is some value for the nose tip, but right now is not that time. We've got better important. We've got a whale to fry, and that's a minnow. Sure. So quick. So one other question on that is, and not to focus too much on the nimitta or whatever, but uh, why why do you think Dama Vito may have may have talked about it in uh, 2013 when I was there? And it was a while ago, so. You know, I don't remember this precise specifics, but I do remember him kind of giving an introduction to the whole Nimitta and talking about it, etc. And if if it wasn't important for Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa by the time he kind of completed his teaching, um, why would Dhammavidu spend time, you know, expounding upon it, etc.? Okay, one one point, and I'm not even sure that this point is relevant, but it's one piece of information that I do have, and that is is that Dhammavidu only arrived at Watson Mok either after Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa died or when he was very ill. Oh, wow. In the last year of his life. This was uh, uh, 1993, and Dhamma Vitu uh, came to Watson Mok at that particular time. So that's when he arrived, and he did not have the detailed kind of conversations with um, uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. He missed those. All he had was the written literature and other monks to talk to. Okay, so that could have something uh, to do with it. The other one is, is that if Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa does teach about the nose tip, then that's okay for Dharma Vitu in the setting that he is in to talk about it also. The reason that I don't talk about it is because I haven't met many students or any students at all who are really needing that or ready for it. Sure. And so it's, a, it's an unneeded, unnecessary teaching that if I found a student that I thought would be uh, would um, benefit from that, then I would uh, teach it. But in fact, teaching the mantras going into the higher jhanas is is it better than using the nimitta but in fact many people who are going to use the nimitta will use both the nimitta and a mantra an example of that would be budo boo on the in breath and do on the out breath focusing just on the air moving in and out and you can see that at the end of the, uh, when you do boo on the in-breath and do on the out-breath, and that's all you're thinking. Those, that's the whole thought for your entire in-breath and out-breath was a boo on the in and do on the out. That means that going into the space between the budo and the next budo 
can stretch out. Okay, and so this is where we get the mind very quiet, very silent, is by working more with the mantra than where uh, the mind is, is focused, that you can actually focus right here and get into the second jhana without having to move the, uh, the nimitta. So the cool. things then that we look at then is, is that the nimitta itself, the way that they use it, is very late, does not follow the suttas. Bhikkhu Dasa was moving out of that over time anyway. And therefore, uh, is also for an advanced training technique that's given too early. Now, that's an especially important point because that's what I find that is the biggest problem with Western Buddhism is they want the whole show. In other words, the first graders of Buddhism in Western Buddhism, they want PhD dissertations to read. They're not they're not good with Dick and Jane. Dick and Jane, they don't want. They can read Dick and Jane, they can understand Dick and Jane, but they want PhD research papers. I, I have a funny story about that, I think you'll like. So uh, so when I was a kid, like in elementary school, we had this program called uh, Accelerate reading or whatever and uh, you could read books you would take a little quiz on the computer and you would get points so I, I found out what book in the library would get the most possible points the reason I did was because if if our table won the most points uh, for a month we would get a pizza party so not mm-hmm. a pity party a pizza party you know better mm-hmm. than, than pity party <laughs> so the opposite <laughs> so anyway I found out the book in the library with the most points was Robinson Crusoe. And I was like in the third grade or something. And so I went to go read it. and It was completely impenetrable to me. You know, it's like a 19th century English and I'm a third grader. So instead I went and I rented the movie and I watched the movie. The movie wasn't much better, but I still got some stuff out of it. And I went and I took the exam and I got 50%. But the book was worth so many points that that 50% was worth more than all the other people in the whole class got. So even though I failed the thing, because it was 50% of a lot, I got a ton Mm -hmm. of points. We got the pizza party. And then the day of the pizza party, I got in trouble for something. And I wasn't allowed to to go (laughs) to my own pizza party that I won for our thing. So that was the... I thought you'd like that story, but <laughs> well, it is an important story to recognize that our say there's a a famous saying, and that is is that uh, our reach um, extends our grasp, or let us say that we can touch something, but grabbing a hold of it is different than just merely reaching it. That we can reach it, but our grasp. Is not, you get what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that we can touch things, but we can't grab them. And so that's what you were doing with that Robinson Crusoe book, was that you could not grab it, but you could touch it. Right. Okay, this is what we look at in Buddhism, is, is that people who are trying to grab things that they can't, they merely touch it and they think that that's the success, when in fact we need to actually grab hold of it, especially in the sense of really grabbing a hold of the mind. 
grabbing a hold of the mind and grabbing a hold of the breath is the whole point. And exactly how we do that is just a mere detail. So if we're really, really grabbing a hold of the breath, then that means that we can control it. Long, deep in-breaths, and whether we're guarding the, uh, the breath at the nose tip and creating the nimitta, or whether we're just watching the breath in general, the important point is, is that both of those success are successful because they're doing the primary ingredient of actually grasping and taking a hold of the breath and learning to control it as opposed to the Mahasi method of just merely watch the breath, which is a much more passive activity. So uh, in in that case, um, uh, Dhamma Vito is absolutely correct. He's teaching a higher Dhamma than uh, merely watching the breath, that he's going actually oh, too far into it and taking the students beyond their ability to grasp hold of the breath because uh, this is an advanced technique. Now they can build up to it. And this is right. what we would recommend. And so I think that in ways he's actually just kind of mentioning that, that he's not certainly not going to be talking about it on the first day of a retreat. No, no, I think it was day three or day four that he brought it in. So by then, you know, the, the people that knew what they were doing had already gotten to a point of mm -hmm. concentration where they could probably deal with it. I, I wasn't there yet. This was my first that's, retreat ever. Yeah. That's another issue that you're bringing up here, and that is is that the problem with meditation retreats like that that's open to a large number of people, the retreat settings, especially the Goenka, I really started to see that in the Goenka retreats while I was there, and that is is that the Goenka retreats themselves are always geared just for the beginners. Hmm. So taking the uh, Goenka retreat one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, you begin to get the foundation of what he's talking about, but that's all you're going to get. Right. Listen, the reason that I left Goenka was because I recognized deep inside that he was missing something. It wasn't that he just wasn't teaching something. It was that he didn't get it himself. Uh, there was something that he was missing. Uh, and it was only when I got into Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa when I started to put together exactly what it was that he was missing. Yeah. Now, over time, in reading uh, Mahasi literature and all of that kind of stuff, I'm beginning to see where uh, both Goenka and Mahasi is missing some really key ingredients that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa uh, was able to know, and the question is, did Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa figure this stuff out for himself, or did he have teachers? The answer was he had teachers. Sure. He had his own teachers. We know who the teacher was. Uh, uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Gosajarn, and Bhikkhu Buddha Gosajarn was the Sumdet of Thailand. He was, I mean, way up there. Like the the king, the word Sangharaj means the king of the monks. Sangharaj, the king of the Sangha. And that his uh, teacher was actually part of the member of the royal family of Thailand, Vija. So Vija uh, actually disrobed to become king for a short period of time. And so this, this noble lineage of, of Thailand is 
somewhat closely related to the royal family, and this is the lineage that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was in of royalty, and we have some fairly good evidence of what happened back then in the 1930s because he was um, accused of a Sangha de Sessa. Now, the word Sangha de Sessa means to break the Sangha. Right. I think you we can see the word this. Yeah. deceit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and the outcome of that, won't go into much detail, but the outcome of it was is that he was uh, could, uh, accused and then convicted or sentenced with uh, that he's teaching the right to Dhamma to the wrong people. Right. That was the sentence, okay? This came down from the entire council, that he's teaching oh, the right Dhamma to the wrong people. Uh, question, what exactly was he teaching that caused so much uproar? I would say that there was that there was kind of a list but at the top of the list, uh, what he was uh, teaching was emptiness, sunyata, and anatta. And that he would uh, go so far, I think, that in fact, the way that it was handled at Watso and Milk for many, many years, when people would want to come and talk about magic or powers or rebirth or reincarnation and that kind of stuff, the typical answer was, oh, we don't talk about that kind of stuff here. We're more interested in the actual liberating teachings of the Dhamma, and none of that stuff is liberating. But if you want to, there's monks and, and a walk down the road someplace there, and you can go down there and talk to them about it if you want to <laughs> talk about it. But here, we're not interested in stuff that's irrelevant. Okay. So that's basically uh, the point then is that he was teaching that stuff into the far distant future or in the deep past is irrelevant. And that goes directly against the teachings of Christianity and the teachings of ordinary Buddhism. Sure. Right. That, oh, no, you are your past. That the Buddha actually says you you inherit your own karma. Right, but people think that that means that you inherit your own uh, the results of your actions three or four hundred years or ten thousand years after you commit the events. So, rather than I, recognizing that you are heir to your karma of your actions right now, if you stick your hand in the fire right now, it will get burned right now. That's so, the teaching uh, yeah. of the Buddha, and this is the teaching that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was on about that got him into trouble. Got it. So I have a question. So I love talking about this stuff, and uh, just talking about it, you know, it is very inspiring. And one challenge in my practice has been, like, for example, one thought I had while we were talking about this stuff is to read more of Bhikkhu Buddha Das's book, The Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, which I started, but I haven't dug as much into it lately. That's a and, bear, isn't it? <laughs> Boy, talking yeah, about reading a book one. that's too far beyond us. You think that one takes anybody three or four books times to read that book? Oh, it's a it's a good one, and I'm only at the introduction. And, uh, <laughs> it gets but I heavy. really enjoyed it. Yeah, so, so anyhow, and I also want to read the Void Mind book that Kishan mentioned. That's also on my list. But it's funny because I... Oh, sorry, go on. 
I spend a lot of time with students talking about that particular one. Do things with a void mind. Now, normally the word void uh, gives people the wrong idea from the beginning. So we have to understand that what we're talking about is void means that it's void of unwholesome thoughts, not void of all thoughts. Right. So, so the reason. So you do things up, with yeah. that avoid with a mind that's void means that you can do the activity. I mean, many people you you cannot operate a computer without thinking. Right. But you but you can operate a computer while thinking wholesomely. But most right. people operate the computer thinking unwholesomely, and so this is the point about the void mind is to do what you will. In fact, this is a little poem that he wrote. That's uh, difficult for most people to understand is, is that we think that all oh, renunciation means that I have to withdraw from doing the things. But a real renunciation inside is to withdraw from the feelings that I have when I do right. those things. Right. That's that's and the that's biggest the thing yeah, that I got out of reading the Bhagavad Gita is they they are very explicit about that in there. That's the best thing about that book, as far as I'm concerned. And it's mm -hmm. been very useful for me, even though I haven't fully gotten it, or I'm not even halfway. But just knowing it's out there, it was useful. And But I, I was going to say one thing that was interesting is, you know, I'm very inspired when we have our conversations. Always the day after, I feel great. I'm all about the practice. Then I notice... Something will come along, you know, drop off a cliff, you know, and, you know, you know, I don't know. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? How can I stop that from happening? Just keep at it, you know, and eventually it'll stop, you know. Or... Yes. the way, If you're talking about <laughs> dropping yeah. off a cliff, which means that all of a sudden the sati is gone, the thrill is gone. Right. That's part of it is the thrill, too. That's part of it is like I get used to doing the practice. And it brings me joy. There's even a little bit of a thrill in it. And then I get maybe you could call it bored of the practice almost. You know, is like I've, I've listened to a lot of your videos. I listened to the whole top video playlist. And I just started your series with Danny. By the way, I listen to them on 2X. So I go twice as fast as, you know. But I enjoy doing that. It's nice. And, and anyway, and so... Uh, it's a great series with Danny, by the way. I've been really enjoying that one. Um, and it's inspired some other conversations I'll bring up with, with you later. But, um, but uh, you know, and, and I find, you know, a lot of enjoyment in that. But I also find that after a certain point, it's like I've listened to too much, you know, or I've practiced too, and then the, the excitement diminishes. It might be because of... Um, because of the physiological stress of quitting, because it did this most recent time coincide with that. Um, but I believe it's also happened at times where I haven't had a particular stress, but I've just gotten a little tired of thinking about the practice. Let's take time, a so. different view for it, just yeah. a moment. Yeah. And that is, is that um, the, let's use the analogy of the student practicing the piano. Okay, what happens the moment or the uh, 30 seconds or the 10 seconds before he quits practicing? 
Um, he uh, decides to quit. Like he's kind of tired. He's like, you know, I've had enough here. But he uh-huh. just kind of maybe so his doing nine. What he's doing so his clip. nine yeah. is no longer on the music. Now his mind is upon how he feels. Right. Okay. Here's where we're coming from now, and that is is that um, you're practicing sati to keep the hindrances away, and then one hindrance will come up, one thought, a hindering thought that comes up, and now it takes over, and you quit, okay? This is the kind of time, that's the point in time, that moment in time is when you need sati the most, is how to sustain this, getting into that state, and then learning how to sustain it means now we're on guard, for the very kind of thoughts that would uh, be in a sequence for you to go back into ordinary bad feelings. You have to be on guard for those. What kind of thoughts will it be that throw you out of your good space so that you can come back immediately and redouble your efforts, put the right um, effort back into it and say, no, not yet. We're going to have some more joy. Thank you very much. I, I'm glad I caught that. I'm glad I caught the mind wandering away again. Because sure. it's going to carry me out. Okay, so this is the new part of the new skills to be developed. Is not just getting oneself into a good state. But to be able to maintain that. This right. is the right. This that's, is that's what really the big problem for me. Yep, we've hit the nail. It's I'm totally fine at getting into a good state. That's not a problem, but it's maintaining it is really the, the problem. Mm-hmm. You know? And so being on guard with that, with the intention of I'm going to catch those kind of thoughts that pull me out of feeling good. Right. And be on guard right. for those. Whack that cow. Sure, sure. And, you know, it's funny. I find there's about four different actually really three different types of thoughts that that seem to dominate my mind throughout the day. So one, we've discussed a lot, but you know we can still keep discussing it because it's inexhaustible, which is uh, I need to do this or I need to do that or I need to plan out this or you know super ego stuff. you know that's mm-hmm. number one. Number two is thoughts of an ex-girlfriend <laughs> or ex-love interest, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of thing comes up a lot for me. And I know it's useless. I know there's no point, but, and I do return to my practice, but it still comes up. It's like a, it's like a scab that just won't heal, you know. Well, it's, it's more like a little a secret pleasure. It, it is some extent yeah okay and, and there's this two in no... particular that keep coming okay. up okay yeah and in fact picking at a scab can be a particular pleasure yes that's very true okay yes. so we have to give that credit we have to be able to see the gratification because if we can't see the gratification then uh it's going to be difficult to uh, make the value judgment about um, the cost-benefit analysis. So you have to see the gratification as well as the danger, okay? 
Now, there was a, um, a, there is an actual very good story of an event that happened between Achan Semedo and Achan Cha. I've heard this one, yep. Uh, right, so let's go to it. When you have thoughts of girls, it's okay to have thoughts of girls. They're delicious. They're beautiful. They're enticing. They're lovely. But I don't want one. <laughs> this is the way to begin to recognize it is okay to have those thoughts, but that you're not about to go act upon it because you can see the dangers are not associated necessarily with the thoughts because those are just lovely thoughts. But when those thoughts turns into desire, not only do I have to think about her, but I got to call her. Right. Now we're getting off into dangerous territory. Right. Okay. Right. So or, this yep. is how we have to understand that, yes, you can give yourself credit for giving yourself pleasure. There's no wrong, nothing wrong with the pleasure, but we have to recognize what the dangers are that go along with those pleasures. Sure. But here you are with your neck comma. Now you're into renunciation and the um, super ego mindset is saying you should not be thinking about girls. And deep inside there, that little child inside saying, I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very true. Okay, so give yourself credit for the fact that you do like it. But now you can change it from renunciation in that, oh, you should not be thinking about girls. You should be enjoying yourself right now. The answer is, well, I am enjoying myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to do it safely and harmlessly because that's all it is, is just thought. Sure. So that's the, that's the easy way for you to begin to deal with that is to recognize, yeah, it's okay to have those thoughts. I mean, let's face it. Our chemistry uh, is a deep, deep part of us that uh, attractions, sexual attractions between men and women is built right into the DNA. It's natural. And yet yep. most of the religious people that I know of are trying to deny that natural part of them by making rules about it. And that's why the Catholic Church, for instance, have two major problems. The Catholic Church has number one major problem of being exposed and getting caught for um, the, the activities that the priests are having with young people. But there's another problem that the Catholic Church has had to deal with for a long time, and that is the medical issues of prostate cancer. Uh. Yeah. Prostate cancer is widespread in celibate groups wow didn't know that you know why it's like, it's, it's kind of like the most useless type of cancer though isn't it like it takes 20 years to kill someone well right so it's 20 years of self-pity denial trying yeah. to keep a vow that goes against our nature right 
And so what we need to do is to kind of go with the nature up to the point of when it gets dangerous. Okay, so. In New York, as well as here on the island, everywhere, the cosmetic industry has been able to infiltrate the minds of the women to tell them always, you're not beautiful without our product. You are missing something. You're just a female. But with our makeup, Maxine, Max, Max Factor will say, you can be a gorgeous female. Right. And so women are working really hard to make themselves look attractive. We should give them credit for all the work that they put in. I mean, this beautiful girl right here has got $15 worth of makeup and it took her two hours to apply it. Let's give her credit for her makeup. But I am not about to fall in love with a makeup package. Yes, sir. That the, that the, the painted face is beautiful. And I like that paint, but I don't want the face. You see where we're coming from with this, okay? That it's okay to give people credit for the beautification that they're making and allow themselves to be beautiful. But just because I like what they look like doesn't mean that I want it, that I'm already okay and that I can appreciate it. And in fact, the winner is the one who can really appreciate another winner. Losers can't appreciate another winner because they are too jealous. But a real winner. So if you're really on top of your game and you really feel good about yourself, then you can allow these beautiful girls to be really beautiful without wanting them. Sure. So one question about the celibacy that you mentioned, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, and you see a lot of this stuff like on Reddit or whatever, you know, about the power of celibacy and how celibacy is good for your practice and this and that, you know, what's your take on that? Do you think that's just wrong or do you think it's, there's some truth to it? You know, what's your view on that? Hello? Hello, are you there? Hello. Oh, hello. Are you there? Okay, you're back. All right, good. I was just checking. No, my internet's still working, so it must have been on your side. In any case, um, just go back to where you were. Uh, What What did the last thing that you heard? Um, So I asked about uh, celibacy and how you know you can read on the internet about how celibacy helped people with their practice and it okay. gives them all this energy and, you know, they reserve all their, right. you know, seed and all of this, you know, so what's your take on, on that whole? Okay, you know? so I was about to talk about in within the context of Western Buddhism. Um, the Western mind is highly influenced by the uh, original religions of the culture. And so the Western mind is heavily influenced by uh, Christianity and that um, it's hard for most people to understand that um, celibacy of priest 
actually, there's nothing to do with celibacy. It has everything to do with marriage. And it has everything to do with marriage because uh, starting in the 11th century, there were enough priests who had enough bastard kids who, when they grew up and dad died, the child was able to take over the church property. And so the Catholic Church had uh, brought about celibacy to keep the priests from marrying so that they could continue to control their property. This actually happens in other cultures, too. It happened in Korea, that if the Korean monks or the Koreans uh, uh, priest or whoever who was running the temple, if he had a child, then the possibility of nepotism, that when that old man died, the new child, his child becomes the leader or the abbot of, or whatever of, of the temple. That's not possible within the Theravada tradition because one has to be a monk of 20 years to become an abbot. Uh, but in other traditions, that was why they didn't want priests to get married is because of the ownership of the property. Okay, but where uh, the whole teaching of the Buddha has to do with freedom. Freedom is the issue. OK, right. and uh, um, in that regard, that if you don't, uh, if you're very, very wise, you can set up your relationships so that you still have freedom. But mostly the easiest way is to be encumbered so that you have complete freedom. Now, um, th there is a sutta where the Buddha talks to lay people. Where he recommends for the lay followers that they give up all of the business and household duties to the wife. Let her be the boss. We let her do what she wants to do. We give advice and consent and that kind of thing. But basically, uh, this is what has made Thailand a matriarchal culture. Is because of the Buddha's advice. The old men recognize, hey, I don't have to work anymore. I can sit at home and let my wife do all the work. <laughs> and I can just take it easy and, and have a relaxed, easy life and spend my time thinking about and talking about the Dhamma and not have to worry about it. So this is uh, another way of having freedom. And you see, that kind of freedom then has nothing to do with celibacy. It has to do with attachments. It has to do with um, uh, time constraints and other things like this. And so just getting away from it all is basically what we're talking about here. And yet that desire that we have inside that comes from our DNA. And there is more to it than just DNA. Let's look at it from another perspective. Let us say that you had two different tribes. Who did some intermarriage and some intermingling so that they eventually became one tribe. Except that this original first tribe over here on the right hand were very highly oversexed. They talked about sex, they thought about sex, they danced in front of each other for sex and all kinds of other stuff. But the other group just naturally 
We're not interested in sex. Nobody cared about sex. Uh, uh, nobody dressed up. Nobody dressed down. Sex was not an issue. You bring these two together, and guess who is going to have the most babies? The people of a mixed marriage, the people who have uh, both husband and wife who were oversexed, and then we have the group of people who the wife and the husband, neither one of them care about sex. Which group is going to have children the most? Well, the oversexed the primitives. Precisely. This is the society where you came from. The most likely is, is that your parents were oversexed. Perhaps. That the people that their parents <laughs> yeah. were oversexed, and the parents before that were right. oversexed. On the other side of the camp, the camp, all of those children of people who were not oversexed, they were not oversexed, and eventually there's not so many of them. Right, right. So that that's the way of what uh, of of humans understanding that humans are way oversexed. Sure. Way beyond what yeah. our actual biology would call for is part of our culture, is part of our tradition, but most specifically is part of our DNA. Sure. So one other thing on the celibacy I think has influenced a lot of people in modern in the modern West is the whole Brahmacharya phenomenon in India. You know, like uh, like Gandhi, you know, talked a lot about the Brahmachari practice. Are you familiar with, with this? Ramacharya? Way too much. Way too much. Yeah. So mm -hmm. what, what's your take on that whole deal? Uh, I would put that part of it <clears throat> into the area of religion, into the area of mythology, into the area of promise. If you do without sex for long enough, you will be awarded these powers. Right, right. It's like okay. Years, who is the who is the authorizing authority that's going to give those powers? More than likely, what's going to happen is if you do without yeah. sex while thinking about sex and denying yourself sex, you're going to have the power of prostate cancer. Right, right. That's, that's what really that's, is going to happen, not what they're promising you. Right. Well, part of the teaching though is also you're not even supposed to think about it. But you know, if you think about thinking about it, you're thinking about it, right? Right. You know, and but, guess what? They yeah. can't stop thinking about it. And you know that because you don't stop thinking about it. Right. Right. Well, in you know fact, young funny. men, I would say about two thirds of their thoughts are sex. Yeah. yeah. Old men, they're down to about one third of their thoughts are sex. <laughs> the better way to be. You know? But so I, I got to say, too, uh, you know, it's funny. Or it's funny. Uh, Gandhi, I, I read a spiritual biography of Gandhi. It was a great book. And he actually believed that there was a so there was a massive earthquake in India, in Mumbai, um, during his whole campaign for Satyagraha, you know, for independence for India, and he believed that if he had undertaken Brahmacharya earlier, that never would have happened. I think that's absurd, but I don't right. know. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> Magical thinking. Yeah. He's also Gandhi, you know, he's a great teacher, you know, but okay. All right. Yeah. So Gandhi's capable of magical thinking. Yeah, Wasn't absolutely. Jesus capable of magical thinking? I mean, he he drove the money Probably. changers out of the temple. 
You know, if he'd have thought about it better, he could have gone in and and, uh, eventually over time with careful detail, he could have made friends with Caiaphas and then convinced Caiaphas uh, himself that the money changers didn't belong in the temple. They could go out on the courtyard. Right. So Jesus could have handled that whole thing wholesomely, but he didn't. Right. He had low-class thoughts about it. So... Just because Gandhi had some low-class thoughts doesn't mean that we have to throw him out completely because he had some good high-class thoughts, too. Sure. We can think of Gandhi the same way that we think of the girl who's got her face all painted up with $10 worth of Maybelline. <laughs> right? Yeah, he's, right. he's hard to be... <laughs> got to give him credit for it. Sure. But we can also be realistic in the sense of, yes, there are some things and no, there are another. Uh that in fact, wanting spiritual power is the greed that is so strong in some people that they will actually give up their sexuality in order to get or just have the promise of it. Okay. And so we can see because we have widespread, uh, not just in our time, but over many, many centuries, we have lots and lots and lots of evidence of people doing well or mediocrely at practicing uh, the renunciation of celibacy. Right? How many of those priests flap their arms and fly out of their uh, uh, priestly quarters, out of their, out of their? Cathedral. How many priests do you see floating in the air above the altar? Very Doesn't few. happen. Yep. <laughs> Doesn't happen. We yeah, have literally hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of examples of people who have practiced celibacy for the long term for many years, some of them being very, very good at it, very great at it, and others being mediocre, but in all cases, no power. In all cases, no power. And so what they do is, is that, oh, I wasn't celibate long enough. If I had only started my celibacy long sooner, I would be flying now. Right. I mean, you know, the, the big counter argument, of course, is Gandhi, right? You know, and he had great power, you know, not like magic powers, but like he had a great, you know, force of personality you know and i think okay. celibacy donald trump has a great force of personality not like gandhi's you know like gandhi how do you know it's not like gandhi well well he does okay donald trump does have a great force of personality but gandhi's was noble so it had like a much more refined okay. all right you know, but you're, you quality, didn't talk about noble you didn't talk about noble you didn't talk about noble you talked about force of personality as if that was a magical power. That's what you said. Sure, sure. Okay, people have force of uh, uh, personal power, of dynamism, of lying to people, of convincing them to do things, to follow, to vote, all kinds of things that are ordinary power, not magical power. Right. And yet people are practicing celibacy, not for ordinary power. No one says, oh, I've been celibate. That's why I'm so charismatic. 
In fact, the guys who get charismatic get charismatic because they're trying to chat up girls. They learn how to be charismatic to get what they want. Sure, totally. So charisma so, has nothing to do with magical powers. So, so another question or comment or whatnot. So, you know, I find that a lot of my life is concerned with getting power. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's like working out, you know, or like physical power or it's, you know, job, you know, career, this and that, you know, or or even meditation to some extent, you know, is, is pursuit of power, you know, and it's like Nietzsche, you know, and I, you know, spoke about how we're all all human beings are just driven by the will to power, you know, no matter what. There's a better and, way of looking at it. Yeah. Okay, we're not driven by the will to power. We're driven about thoughts of fear. And we want the power because if we feel like that we're powerful, then that will help mollify our fear. Sure. If someone is, is has no fear, if they feel secure, they have a kind of power that the Frady Cat only wants and doesn't have. This is the real power that comes from a correct practice of Anapanasati is the right attitude that I can, in fact, clean out my mind. The right attitude of I'm on top of this. I can handle anything. Now, that's real power to where people who are still dealing with fear and want power, they're wanting some sort of physical manifestation of power that they can grasp hold of. So they're looking for magical power, mostly. And so the greed for magical power is old. It's common. People spend a lot of time, a lot of energy. You wouldn't believe how much, uh, let us say, human man hours or uh, whatnot during the Middle Ages was spent on alchemy. A lot. I mean, even uh, Isaac Newton, like he spent mm-hmm. half his career on physics and the other half on alchemy. On you alchemy, know, and, right. And it's and alchemy is he could is have accomplished magic. so much more if he just stepped, stayed to the physics. I mean, he accomplished way more than anyone else ever will, but <laughs> most likely. But still, maybe he could have done double what he did had he had that time from the alchemy. We don't, you know? we don't know those kind of things, but we do know yeah. that... People want power because they think that they need it. And why would they need the power unless for for protecting themselves? And when you don't need any protection for one reason or another, and one of the reasons to not need any protection is because you're not trying to protect the self anymore. The self is not important so much. Here's myself. Have at it. Shoot it all you want. You know, say anything you want to about about who I am, because I'm not that. Whoever you're complaining about, that's not me. So if we come to that position is, is that the reason that I don't need any power is because I'm not afraid. And the reason that I'm not afraid is because the, uh, uh, the, the target is safe. The reason the target is safe is because it's not a fixed target that can be hit is a moving target. Yeah, you, you know, and so funny, if you're so. a moving target, then you're safe. Yeah, so I got two little two little 
stories or soliloquies that I think you'll appreciate. So one is this morning I was reading, um, I read in the news that the, the leader of Boko Haram was killed, which is this terrible terrorist organization in Nigeria. And so I read the, the obituary of him because it was just kind of just for whatever reason, you know, it was there. And um, and it talked about how, you know, he 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 was the terrorist leader for like, you know, like 12 years or something like that. I think since 2009. So, yeah, 12 years. And and he got to be so like uh, paranoid, you know, and whatnot, that his entire area where he lived was just filled with landmines and traps and every type of killing, you know, defense mechanism that he could have he would put surrounding him and the only way they were able to get him was because some of his his lieutenants turned on him so they were able to infiltrate his compound and it made me think our little conversation just a minute ago of i remember reading several years back about the king of jordan and the king of Jordan has a lot of power, but I don't think he's an absolute monarch, but I think he just has a lot of power. And one thing I read about him is that the closer the family member is to the king, the closer they are to the center of the family, the less they think the king should have any power. <laughs> so, you know, the cousin of the king thinks the king should have a good amount of power. The king's wife thinks the king should be a constitutional monarch. <laughs> The king thinks he should be a constitutional monarch. The brother, you know, more middle situation. But the further off, you know, the random person thinks the king should have all the power. But the king himself doesn't, you know, so it's kind of interesting because it's exactly what you're saying about how, you know, if you actually have the power, you don't even care about having the power. Or you might even not want it because you're not afraid, you know. Mm -hmm. And so so the king of Jordan doesn't even want it, you know. Whereas this... uh, this uh, this terrorist guy was living in a hell of his own creation, you know, a complete hell by having mm-hmm. all this power that he accumulated over the years. So, I don't know. I thought you'd, yeah. Well, there's another story um, uh, called The uh, the Prince and the Pauper. I think that, in fact, they made an opera out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've talked there's... about this one, yeah. Right. And the little kid who was a street urchin, he was doing just great. And he was discovered to be the prince. And so they put him in the palace with guards and all of that. And he hated it and he escaped. He didn't like right. the fact that it, that uh, the palace was dangerous. That's why you have palace guards. If people got money, they need to protect it. If you don't have any money, you don't need to protect it. Right. That's freedom. If you own a bunch of stuff, that means that you've got to be you. you, In a way, you can say that uh, anything that you own owns you. If you own a house, that means that that house depends upon you to take care of it. If you rent a house, now the landlord is the one who has to take take care of the house you don't have to take care of it anymore you just live in the house and if if something is broken it doesn't get fixed you don't have to fix it it's up to the landlord to fix it right if you own that house you've got to fix it yourself 
So it's better not to own property because if you own property, the property owns you. And every toilet, every time the toilet breaks up or uh, clogs up or something, guess what? You've got work to do. So this brings us back to renunciation, right? Mm -hmm. So so in renunciation, like there's a lot of power in that, you know, in, in a sense, because nothing's tying you down. You fully renounce. You know, oh, you're talking about renunciation in a different way than I'm talking about it. When I'm talking about renunciation, I'm talking about the idea of planning in the future to not do it. A vow. Like the vow of poverty that the priest takes. <clears throat> upon, you know, the ceremony upon the time that he becomes a priest or whatever like that is when he takes the vow. Sure. It's year after year, day after day later that he has to deal with that vow. Right. <clears throat> and so the whole point that we're talking about renunciation has to do with the vow itself. As opposed to the wisdom of noticing, for instance, right now is not a good day to buy a house. Sure. And then tomorrow I come by and I say, right now, today is not a good day to buy a house. <laughs> As opposed to renounce, renouncing ownership. Right. Not now, not ever. Is is uh, That's way off into the future. That means that now we're setting a rule about the future. But if we can see right now, it's not a good idea to buy the house. Today is not a good idea about the house, and I don't have to renounce it. So, so what do you think of the Buddha, you know, who's so famous for renouncing the world? Um, he didn't renounce the world. That's the story. Right. Is he, uh, first he did, and then he walked the middle way, which was not actually path of right. renunciation entirely. Right. Yeah. Right. Renunciation is not a mental path. It's an extreme. Not now is a middle path. Not ever is extreme. Sure. So do you feel like, I'm sure you do, but do you feel like you're, you're walking the middle path right now? You know, like, do you ever I'm miss not the walking. robes? I'm sitting. sitting. I'm sitting. sitting like I should say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I feel like the notion of the middle path, like that would be the goalposts kind of change for that, right? Like the, the middle path to someone. Actually, the middle path is yeah. when you don't have extremes like goalposts. The goal is to have no goalposts. Sure. Goals are always at the extreme. You're always on the middle path when you don't have any goals. Because the goal is either way over there or way over there. Sure. You've got no goals. Here goal. you are. <laughs> no place to go. <laughs> interesting. So, you know, another thing that 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 was interesting is, um, you know, I I really enjoyed my retreat at Swan Moak, um, and I I'd love to go back someday hopefully hopefully somewhat soon you know depending on the whole covid and everything um i i i remember re listening to one of the videos with danny and he talked about how he didn't have such a good time there 
Um, I don't know if he ever went back or not after that video. But is is Damavidu still teaching there? Are they still doing it the way they used to do it? Um, like in uh, 2013, I think that you that he was still doing retreats at yeah. um, uh, the International Dhamma Hermitage. Now he spends. Uh, in fact, I think that. He either spends half or all of his time at Deepabawan, and when he's teaching, he's teaching at Deepabawan, which is on the island, which is where Achan Po stays. So and I also uh, saw Dhamma, Ajahn Po. I met Ajahn Po at the, right. So Achan yeah. Po is staying at uh, as Deepabawan, and that's where uh, Dhamma V2 is teaching. However, I don't think that there's doing they're doing anything because of COVID right now. That they'll open back up soon enough, but right now they're uh, uh, between things. So everything is easy going, nothing's happening. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, hopefully I'll get out there sometime. But uh, does Deepa Bowen uh, do retreats? Wat Cow Tom, Indira. The International Dhamma Hermitage, all of those do retreats. The yeah, International not, Dhamma Hermitage is the one who does most of them in Thai, but Deepa One does Thai retreats also. Uh, uh, I thought uh, the International Dhamma Heritage one, that was in English when I went. They have actually three retreats a month, two in Thai and one in English. Ah, uh, got it. At, at uh, Deepa One, uh, they have generally one in Thai, one in English, and one in Russian. Yeah, cool. Lots of Russians. So I I would like to go to the English one. It would be nice to see uh, John Poe and also Damavidu again. That would be great. I, I don't know if they'll remember me, but <laughs> it'd be good to. Good enough. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyhow, well, you're not the same early. one who was there in 2013 anyway. No, I'm not. <laughs> Neither are they. But uh, um, anyhow, good stuff. So uh, so this was very useful uh, today. I really appreciate it. Um, do you have, as always, it's always useful, you know. Um, but uh, do you have any uh, final concluding thoughts or any pointers or or tips, or, yeah. Yes, everything has to be back to this present moment. Renunciation is planning for a future that you cannot right now control. Mm. The next one is about power. Wanting power is the same as wanting anything that you don't have. It's suffering. Getting yourself into a state of satisfaction is not suffering. Power is something, whether it's magical power or any other kind of power, power is sought because people are insecure. Right. When you are not insecure, when you feel secure, you don't need power. And therefore, you don't want it. But somehow or another, it's self-evident.
Hello? 